Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. Coming up, Brooklyn author Helen Phillips joins us to tell me whether or not I should have children. Also to talk about her new book, The Need. Some of the that section with the childbirth is drawn from my own experiences, and it was extremely fascinating to me how when I was in labor, I felt like I had always been in labor permanently, forever. And then some great summer reading. But you don't have to take my word for it. There's going to be crying. There's going to be like self-examination and like all of your relationship stuff is going to come spilling out. But it's going to be in this incredible, gorgeous prose that you just like can't stop thinking about. So you're going to cry, but it's going to be so worth it. In The Argonauts, Maggie Nelson writes, The task of the cervix is to stay closed, to make an impenetrable wall protecting the fetus for approximately 40 weeks of a pregnancy. After that, by means of labor, the wall must somehow become an opening. This happens through dilation, which is not a shattering, but an extreme thinning. That quote could serve as a jumping-off point for Helen Phillips' new novel, The Need, which follows Molly, a paleobotanist and mother of two, as previously impenetrable walls between mother and child, reality and illusion, this dimension and the next, undergo an extreme thinning. It's creepy, it's philosophical, it's funny, and we're happy its release brings Helen Phillips to the studio today. Welcome. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. How are you describing the book? I've seen it referred to as speculative fiction, as a thriller. Is there a way that you can help people wrap their minds around what this book is? Well, it is interesting in terms of genre because there are a lot of different genre elements that it has, but I think the most succinct one is perhaps a domestic thriller with a side of science fiction and a lot of breast pumps. <laughs> yes, so. there is. There's so much viscera. There's so much pumping of breast milk, blood, vomiting that happens in this book. It's a very um, physical, bodily, fluid, obsessed novel. Mm-hmm. Yes, I feel like there, for me, there aren't enough fictional representations of that texture of motherhood, which as the book goes out into the world, it seems that a lot of people relate to that, but it's it's not represented as often as I would like it to be. So one of my goals was to bring representation to that. I think you do a great job of that. I think so often there's like a cloak of shame put mm-hmm. around bodily functions, especially in regards to women and motherhood. And you sort of lay it all out there. Well, I think that for me, when I began lactating, it was such a surreal experience, and I was surprised I knew so little about it, given that it's also a fairly common experience. Though it's, in a way, this most animal instinctual thing we do, there's also something very science fiction about it, about your body suddenly becoming a food source. You write it at many different points, the main character, Molly, who is breastfeeding, you talk about her milk coming down, Mm -hmm. whether this is when she's at work doing something else and she hasn't pumped recently or in moments of fear or connection to her children. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious if it it, does it represent something to you like a, a trigger in the novel at all? Is it like the color red in the sixth sense? Well, your milk drops at times of high emotion. And that was another thing I didn't know about lactation that was very intriguing to me when it happened, that I would have a strong feeling and that would be followed by a physiological response. And that connection between emotion and then a physical reaction is very fascinating to me. So throughout the book, there's this link between big emotions and this physical reaction. 
And I love I love the book The Argonauts. I love what you said about that, that everything is porous. The emotional world and the philosophical world and the physical world are all porous. So I'll back up a little bit and talk broadly about where we start in the novel for mm-hmm. people who haven't read it yet. Um, so Molly, who is a mother of two and a paleobotanist, um, she is digging in a pit. It's called the pit, mm-hmm. uh, a site where she's excavating fossils. And on the botany side, there are all of these plant fossils that don't fit into the historical record. But she's also finding artifacts seemingly from our world. But there's something wrong with each of the artifacts. For example, there's a toy soldier that has a monkey tail. Um, and she also finds a Bible. And there is a seeming misprint in the Bible. Uh, and that starts off this chain of events. I'm curious. Curious, when you write speculative fiction, are there rules that govern how you write when you are applying science fiction elements? I imagine, on the one hand, it must feel freeing to be able to stretch the boundaries of reality. Uh, but are there ways that you rein yourself in so that everything makes sense within the context of this world that you're building? Probably a lot of people would say that there are certain rules, but I feel like in a way one of the freedoms provided is that you create your own rules when you're doing it. And for me in this book, those rules had to do with, aside from the one speculative element of the book, which will go unspoken so as not to spoil the book, I really wanted it to be very realistic and convincing. And I think that that helps speculative fiction function if surrounding the magical element, there's a lot that grounds it in the known world. The fossils that she finds in the pit are indeed mysterious, but I would like to point out that paleobotanists are often finding fossils that don't make sense in the fossil record. So that might read like a science fiction element of the book, but in fact, the fossil record is incomplete and will always remain so. So much of the book is about motherhood and about the power of women to create life. I don't have kids, but I think about having kids. And the way that you describe it feels both very visceral in sort of like human Jungian way and also completely unknowable. Um, And I'm curious about your experience becoming a mother. Were there things that you, this is a dumb question, I'm sure there were things (laughs) that you didn't expect uh, that, that all of a sudden you now know as a mother. What are some of those things and how did it inform the way that you that you thought about writing this book about about maternity? I think realizing, I think a lot of it was those experiences that are common human experiences throughout history, but that are actually pretty surreal, like growing another body inside of your body and feeding another body from your own body. Um, it's It causes a slight dislocation of self to be growing another person like that. And at the same time, I love having children, and it's the clearest path to ecstasy that I've ever experienced. But the the greater you love something, the greater the dread that something will happen to the thing that you love. And I think that that experience of that dual love and dread, I never could have anticipated what that would feel like. And the book is my way of trying to articulate that. This idea of a state of liminality also Mm. recurs again and again. And I want to just read this passage that you write about orgasm. Mm -hmm. Um, It puzzled her that orgasm wasn't widely considered a phenomenon that challenges everything we believe about human existence. Doesn't it serve as proof of an alternate state of being? Isn't the fact that people can feel this way, so enthralled to this enigmatic force, so carried by it, even for an instant, 
evidence that the state in which we spend most of our time is merely one possibility. And you also write about childbirth in a similar way, about these moments of dislocation, of crossing over. Did you experience that sort of um, neither here nor there-ness that the character describes? I did. Uh, some of the that section with the childbirth is drawn from my own experiences, and it was extremely fascinating to me how when I was in labor, I felt like I had always been in labor permanently, forever. It felt like it felt like a different state of being. Absolutely, um, time passed quickly and slowly. I had an image of this elk bellowing on a hill, and somehow that image came to me and helped me through. So I became very fascinated after that of just the moments in life where the curtain peels back and and you see some other way of existing. And that is very central to the need, the idea that the life that you're living in that feels so solid is only one possibility. Mm Yeah, that passage reads like an extreme drug trip mm-hmm. where Molly's like, what time is it? It's, you know, 623. And then five hours later is like, what time is it? And it's 624. And then time seems to have this nebulous quality. Um, not that men or you know people with penises can't ha- experience orgasm. But do mm-hmm. you think that people with wombs, um, maybe because of that connection, do you think that there's a power in people with wombs to somehow be more deeply in touch with altered states or other worlds? I don't know. I don't know. I That's sort of halfway a science question and halfway a philosophy question, mm-hmm. and I don't feel qualified to answer it. But I do think that the experience of labor did change my perspective a little bit about the state of being in which I spend most of my time. It didn't feel as solid afterwards. A lot of what sets the plot in motion is this idea of people being threatened by this power of women, Um, the power to give life, the divine goddess. Um, Why do you think people are so scared of that? Well, I'm reading a very interesting book right now called The Flash Count Diary by Darcy Steinka that is It's actually about menopause, you could say, but it's about so much more. And it's about how women have been um, considered witches throughout time and the small things that would cause someone to think that you were a witch. Like if your neighbor had a dream about you, that meant you were a witch. All these little things. (laughs) Oh, fuck. (laughs) There you are. You're a witch because some random person had some random dream. If you brewed beer. Yes, Which is like all date, sorts right? of things. Yeah, uh-huh. She has a very funny list in that book of all the different things that could make someone think you were a witch. So why do people fear that? I don't know why people fear that. Um, but I, again, in writing the book, there were things that I wanted to write about in terms of that creative generative power of motherhood that I was craving to read in books. And there are some books that do it really well, but I needed more. What has the reaction to the book been like to people who both have young children or who maybe are thinking about having kids? I've gotten different reactions. It's so interesting to write a book in solitude and then send it out into the world and see how it lands with different readers. So some parents with young children find it too frightening to read and say, I need to wait till they're older. Some people with young children say, this was the exact book I needed to read right now. This is the most perfect articulation of the fears that I feel. I feel less alone in my fear since you've articulated it. Um, one young woman who doesn't have children said, this, is, this book explains to me why I 
don't want to have children because mm-hmm. of this level of anxiety. And then other people have said, this book makes me want to have children and just experience that level of love. So I've gotten all sorts of reactions to that. You write children so well. Uh, the dialogue from Viv, who's the four-year-old, um, as somebody who has spent some time around four-year-olds, I think is spot on. It, it seems like you really understand their emotional state, what motivates them. Are you taking notes as you're parenting? Like, are, are these lines that are pulled directly from your own children? Some lines are pulled from my own children. Some are. Um, but I do think that sometimes when I encounter children in fiction, I dislike the way they're rendered because it can really run the risk of being precious and cute. And you don't need to do anything or add anything for them to be cute. They already are. And I feel like having too many exclamation marks or having them putting a W for their R's so that they talk really cute is, it's <laughs> right. cloying. And one of the reasons I don't like that evocation of children is because it makes them seem not quite human. And in fact, what they are is small humans who are stuffed with personality. And so having that, not so that Viv just read as some kid, but her actual human being, quality of a human being came through. And yeah, she's fully fleshed out. She's I, Yes, I wanted that fullness of her. And you've written four children as well. I, did, I wrote um, one middle grade novel, so that's for 10 to 12 year olds, which was a foray into something. I generally write for an adult audience, but it was fun to take that foray into writing for kids. What was that particular challenge like and what did you bear in mind with, as you were writing for 10 to 12 year olds? Actually, I got the advice early on from my agent to not change the language, to not in any way dumb it down. And so it didn't feel terribly different from writing for adults. It was just that the subject matter was about a 10 and a 12-year-old pair of sisters whose father has disappeared into the rainforest under nefarious circumstances, and they have to solve the mystery. But one of the reasons I wanted to write for that age group is because the books at that age, when you're 10 to 12 years I was such a, I loved reading so much at that time. I feel like that can be a really exciting time as a reader. So writing for that age group is exciting. Also because your fans will write to you, this is my favorite book I've ever read, which no adult really will say, but children, they haven't read as much. So they're right. willing to say, this is my favorite book ever. Out of the 17 books I've yes, read, I've this loved the this one, one the most. So I'll take it. <laughs> um, I want to come back to this idea about trusting women. I feel like it's something that we talk about a lot in a post-Me Too era is the mm-hmm. idea of trust women. Um, and I feel like that's a theme that reemerges in the book time and again. Molly's told that no one will believe her if she goes to the police and says mm-hmm. what is happening to her. Um, also this idea of, you know, trusting your own body, trusting your own instinct as a mother. Um, why do you think we don't trust women? I feel like that's a very deep sociological question. But in the book, I think that a lot of the um, doubt that Molly has springs from within. It's internalized doubt that this feeling that she isn't a good enough mother, that she isn't up to the task, that she's somehow failing at every moment. And it seems to me that there are probably cultural reasons that women feel that way. And in the book, It is my hope that people will feel sympathetic for Molly, even though maybe she does some things that are not so great. Having her be a sympathetic character will maybe help with some of those pressures that women feel. I mean, I think it's interesting that she also often doesn't trust herself, right? Mm -hmm. In the opening chapter, she's crouched with her children in the bedroom, listening to the footsteps of an intruder. And she has moments of 
maybe I'm not, maybe it's nothing. Maybe this is mm-hmm. postpartum brain. And then coming back and hearing the footsteps and being like, no, it absolutely is someone. Um, which reminds me of what you were saying about these moments in childbirth too, of like, what is reality? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that she is teetering between different realities and that is also, that happens in the first chapter and that's played out throughout the book. And that's a big part of motherhood when you're sleep deprived and you're balancing your identity as a mother and your identity as a working person, the identity you had before you had children. Reality on all sides, you just, you're just not quite sure what's what. Would you want to read a passage from the book? Sure. Maybe I'll read from the beginning since Great. we were just talking about that. So. She crouched in front of the mirror in the dark, clinging to them, the baby in her right arm, the child in her left. There were footsteps in the other room. She had heard them an instant ago. She had switched off the light, scooped up her son, pulled her daughter across the bedroom to hide in the far corner. She had heard footsteps. But she was sometimes hearing things, a passing ambulance mistaken for Ben's nighttime wail, the moaning hinges of the bathroom cabinet mistaken for Viv's impatient pre-tantrum sigh. Her heart and blood were loud. She needed them to not be so loud. Another step. Or was it a soft hiccup from Ben? Or was it her own knee joint cracking beneath 36 pounds of Viv? She guessed the intruder was in the middle of the living room now, halfway to the bedroom. She knew there was no intruder. Viv smiled at her in the feeble light of the faraway street lamp. Viv always craved games that were slightly frightening. Any second now, she would demand the next move in this wondrous new one. Her desperation for her children's silence manifested as a suffocating force, the desire for a pillow, a pair of thick socks, anything she could shove into them to perfect their muteness and save their lives. Another step hesitant but undeniable or maybe not the book is called the need what is the need the need that title came late in the game Mm -hmm. it was originally called molly the need is many different things in the book the need is the most basic need of a child's need for milk And then also the mother's need for the child to relieve her of the milk and the mother's need for her children, that love going two directions. We think of a child needing its mother, but I think that a mother needs the child as well. Um, And then there are, and I'm going to avoid spoilers here, but there's someone in the book who needs something so desperately with the most visceral desire you could ever need something. Another piece of media that I thought when I was reading Mm -hmm. the book was the film Interstellar by Christopher Nolan. I have that has been recommended to me and I've been told some of the relevant scenes, but I haven't seen it. Oh, you haven't seen it? No. So there are some really key threads that are mm-hmm. similar. If people know the film, maybe they will start speculating at this point. But mm-hmm. one of them is a parent-child relationship. Mm-hmm. And uncharitably, perhaps it has been said that if Matthew McConaughey is Christopher Nolan, that this is a letter to his children, to Christopher Nolan's children, saying, mm-hmm. Hey, sorry I haven't been around a lot. I've been saving the world. I'm curious, if Molly is a stand-in for you, what do you think this novel says to your children? Well, Molly isn't quite a stand-in for me, but I do think that when my children read this book as adults, my hope is that they would understand how intense and overpowering 
the love I have for them is and how a love that strong is a frightening force and a powerful force. That certainly comes through to the reader. Good. I'm so glad. Um, the book is called The Need. It is available now. It is available as of yesterday. And are you doing a book tour? Do you have any more events coming up in Brooklyn? I do. Well, I am um, at McNally Jackson in Manhattan tomorrow. Then I'm heading on a book tour out to California, New Mexico, Colorado, Massachusetts. And I'll be back for the Brooklyn Book Festival and the Slice Literary Conference in September in Brooklyn. Great. Well, Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Summer is finally here. Time to get off your phone, stop binge watching Billions or Ballers, I'm never sure if those are the same show or not, and crack a book. But what does your favorite summer read say about you? Some pretty mean things, to be honest. She's kind of a bitch, and I'm your real friend, so I thought you should know. Here to give us some book recommendations that will only speak well of you is Jessica Stockton-Bagnulo, co-owner of Greenlight Bookstore. Welcome back, Jessica. Hi, thanks for having me. So when we were talking about having you on for this segment, you mentioned that your store manager might be good because uh, he or she was a really good hand seller. Uh What does that mean? (laughs) I guess that's a little bit of a jargony bookstore thing. Um, But we call it hand selling because it's when you actually take a book and put it in a customer's hand. Um, But it's it's just when someone comes in and they're like, I'm looking for something to read. And you're like, well, what kinds of things do you like? What's the last book you read that you really love? What do you hate? And then you're really curating a book for them and finding it and literally putting it in their hand. So this is kind of a a version of hand selling that we're doing today. Got it. So it's someone who's really good at making individual recommendations. Exactly. Are there competitions for that? There should <laughs> Not be. Not formally. Although we do have um, our, our staff picks are pretty closely watched like who's is, who's is selling the best on any given day. <laughs> Got it. Are there awards? Just uh, glory. Only glory and fame, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to give you the opportunity to hand sell me some books. Awesome. Um, all right. What if I'm a person who really wants a good, weepy beach read? I want to be in full tears at Jacob Reese Beach. What Absolutely. would you recommend? Sometimes that's really what you're looking for. So the one I picked for that that reader is Ocean Vuong's On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous. So Ocean is an incredible writer. He's a poet. We've had him at Greenlight a couple times for our poetry salon. So you know he's incredible eloquent and it is going to move you. This is fiction, um, but there are a lot of autobiographical elements. It's about a young man, a young queer man from Vietnam, and it's addressed to his mother with whom he has a really problematic but loving relationship. So you know it's going to be dark. There's going to be crying. There's going to be like self-examination and like all of your relationship stuff is going to come spilling out. But it's going to be in this incredible, gorgeous prose that you just like can't stop thinking about. So you're going to cry, but it's going to be so worth it. And you're going to fall in love with Ocean. I have really wanted to read this. I know his poetry. Um, also great beach read because his name is Ocean. Ocean. So that hits a couple that. different notes Perfect. there. <laughs> um, all right. What about the type of book that you're embarrassed to be seen reading in public? So you have to buy it as an ebook, read it on your Kindle. And when somebody asks, what you're reading, you say Middlemarch for the third time. <laughs> I have had books like that. So this one is a little bit of a variation on that theme. So you might not mind people seeing the cover of this book. It's the memoir by John Waters, Mr. Know-It-All. But you don't want people reading over your shoulder because John Waters is dirty. Mm, like every mm-hmm. pa- every chapter is going to have some parts that are totally X-rated. But he's so much fun. I mean, I feel like John Waters is like the original punk. Like he, 
he's just interested in all of humanity and like all of their funkiness and weirdness and darkness and grossness. And it, he just has fun with it. And he's incredibly generous. This is written as a like help self-help kind of memoir, although it's obviously very tongue in cheek because no one is John Waters and no one's ever going to be John Waters. But it's great stories about his life and all the people he's known and all the crazy stuff that he's done. But yeah, it is definitely like something that you're going to want to kind of like make sure no one's looking over your shoulder. You're going to be reading on your Kindle and you're going to be blushing on the train. <laughs> exactly. You're gonna be is like, this his first uh, memoir or book of personal no, essays? No, he's written a couple. He wrote a great one about taking a road trip across America and he's written other ones about like film or other stuff. But this one just came out recently, and it's sort of, I think, the most wide-ranging one about his whole kind of development as an artist and as a cultural figure. Um, and it's just like like laughs on every page, but also, yeah, every everything you can imagine from John Waters. I will say, based on his cover photo, he's looking more and more like Helena Bonham Carter every oh my day. Gosh, that's an I hope they eventually will merge into one person. Yeah, exactly. She just needs the mustache. Yes. That's all. Um, what about the opposite? What if there's a book that I want everyone to know that I'm reading. I'm definitely not going to buy it for my e-reader. <laughs> I'm going to read it on the train and people are going to think very highly of me. Right. So I read a couple for that because we have a couple prestige reads this season. So my personal favorite is this one, The Old Drift, which I think was a little bit of a sleeper, but then it started getting this like word of mouth buzz and people were coming in being like, do you have this book? Um, so Namwali Serpel, the author, is from Zambia. She teaches at Berkeley now, but this book is kind of like an epic history of Zambia, which sounds like a long shot like why is this the book that I want to read this summer but it's just so like sentence by sentence it's so gorgeous like I literally looked up and was like damn that is a great sentence but it's the characters are larger than life it's this whole sort of intersecting multi-generational family story and there's like a little bit of magical realism into in it there's sort of a Greek chorus of mosquitoes who are like the only consistent thing from like the 19th century to like the near future in Zambia. But it's so imaginative and absorbing, but like also some really good literary cred that you're like, oh, I'm just reading this hot new Zambian author, you know. Oh, you haven't no heard big deal. about it? You haven't oh, heard of her? Okay, weird. But yeah, but she's fantastic. She is the real thing. It's like, it's always nice when like it lives up to the hype. She's so good. So this is like one of my favorite reads this season. It sounds like a Gabriel Garcia Marquez, that but in Zambia. Exactly. There's definitely an element of that, but I've very contemporary. I feel like this is sort of a trend that we're seeing in literature with Pachinko, these sort of like mm -hmm. multi-generational epics set yeah. in a country that feels a little bit like you're traveling somewhere if you're stuck here in New yeah. York for the summer. Exactly. It's armchair travel. What else do go. you have? Then this is the other one. Honestly, this is like the it book of the season, Sally Rooney's Normal People. We cannot keep it on the shelves. It's very literary, almost quiet in terms of story. It's a sort of like inter-class romance uh, it's, and you know not not super exotic but the writing is just so exact and intimate and she is just so amazing and she's been, just been getting buzz after buzz after buzz so she's we're actually going to be hosting her in the store this fall and we're like is our store big enough to hold all of the wow. Sally Rooney fans I'm not really sure that it is so we're still figuring that out but this is the one that you're like have you read the new Sally Rooney yes or no are you in or out so this is definitely the one that you want to be able to say yes you've read normal how people. many books has she written before normal people this Does she is have a oh my gosh I should know already? this right offhand um she wrote conversations with friends was her previous book so I believe this is her second so that okay. one was sort of like beginning to build 
her buzz and this one just like exploded. This is the book that maybe you just casually leave out on mm-hmm. the bar on a Absolutely. first date. And be like, oh, right. normal people. Yes, there you go. Um, what about, I'm pretty superficial. I just want to read a book with a good cover. Give me the book that I can judge by the awesome. cover. So I brought two for that one as well. These are, and I mean, obviously taste is subjective. Like these are my favorite covers. I don't know if they're going to work for everybody. But, are they so, covers for women or are they covers for men? Uh, I didn't really think of it in those terms. I'm sorry. So it depends on the man or the woman, I guess. <laughs> Right. Good answer. Um, and could you describe <laughs> them as well for our podcast listeners? Sure. Okay. So the first one is Magic for Liars by Sarah Gailey. And it's a bright red cover with bright yellow words for the title. And it has a picture of a hand with crossed fingers. Um, but on the but the hand is black, and on the wrist of the hand there is an open eye. This is so, great. This is drawing me in. Like, oh, I'm like kind of dabbling in tarot. I mm-hmm. also like you know good graphic design. I get it. I yes, get it. it's very dramatic, and it's a really fun story. It's honestly a little bit. If you had a category for like overgrown Harry Potter fans, like this one is there. It's set in a magical school in L.A. Which, like, you can imagine as a slightly different culture from Hogwarts. Sure. And it's um, a detective who's um, the non-magical sister, and her sister is a is at the school the school for magicians. So there's a lot of kind of like tension and resentment between the two between the magic and the non-magic sister. So she's trying to solve a mystery that's happened at the school for magic. But it turns out that like magic students are just as much punks, and, and you know. Kid, like children as kids at any other school. So it's really fun, very unexpected, um, but also kind of like hits all of those those fun buttons for fantasy lovers. But yeah, it is a very dramatic cover. Would this also be a good book for, say, like an advanced middle reader? Um, there's definitely some sex and violence elements that would kind of depend okay. on the kid and the parent. Mm-hmm. It's, it's definitely not written for kids. It's written for adults. But I think a kid would really be into it if, he, if they could get their hands on it. All right. <laughs> Which is the best kind. And then another one of my favorite reads for the summer, this one is Washington Black by Essie Edugyan. I may not be pronouncing her name correctly. She's um, a Canadian writer, um, but the, the book is set all over the world. So the cover is very sort of like Victorian looking almost. It's um, like pale yellow and it has like some drawings of trees. And then right in the middle, there's a gondola, like a boat, but attached to a hot air balloon and a couple of figures that you can just barely see and some oars coming out of the boat. This is like um, a steampunk tattoo that Mm -hmm. is definitely on somebody's body in Brooklyn. Absolutely. I hope so. I want to meet that person. Um, But it's evocative of this. Yeah, definitely a little bit steampunk, but it's almost like a Dickensian, just sort of big, epic adventure kind of story. It starts on a slave plantation in Barbados and a, a, a young man is sort of like, uh, enslaved slash adopted by the brother of the man who actually owns him. Um, but in that that man ends up being a scientist who's working on air travel via gondola, and they end up having adventures all over the world together. So it kind of has all of those satisfactions of like a Victorian adventure novel, but with a very contemporary sensibility about race and gender and class and everything else. So it's, it's like super fun, but also not dumb. Um, and so you can look at that cover and maybe start to get a sense of what's exciting about it. And I see it was also shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. Exactly. Well. And it won the so Giller cred. Prize, which in Canada is a huge deal. We like aren't that aware of the Giller Prize, but it's it's awesome. And she is an amazing writer. Okay, so. great. Cool. Um, last category, books for people who lie about how much they read, <laughs> but mainly they just play Candy Crush on their phones. <laughs> so the one I chose 
reference for this one is When Brooklyn Was Queer by Hugh Ryan. This is a great book. And we also had Hugh on the show talking yes. about it uh, a couple months ago. Yeah. So this one I, I chose because I feel like you should have read this book as like a culturally literate Brooklynite because it's so local and it's so contemporary. Obviously, this is a big year for like queer history is the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. But Hugh Ryan's point is that Brooklyn has this sort of very under-discussed queer history. And so that's the book sort of aims to sort of uncover that and like bring it back into light. Um, so it's a lot of stuff that you should know and great stuff to like drop at cocktail parties. But I feel like you don't necessarily have to read it to get some <laughs> of those really good tidbits because there are great photographs. There are great captions. That's There's why there all are of pictures these in like, it. Exactly. So you can have it around and you can pretend that you've read it when you all actually just have like pulled a little some little bits of trivia about it to like add to the conversation. That was a hard category. And I think you did a great job. because. Thanks. Also, with fiction, you can bullshit a little bit easier. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, yeah, the magical realism really carried me away, or the <laughs> language is so beautiful. But, you know, with nonfiction, you have to actually have a fact to pull out of your hat. Right. Out of you your can bowler pull hat. some facts out of this, and yeah, you'll be, you'll be looking good. Well, what a great summer reading list. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you. And that's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to clean your breast pump. Or you could review 112BK on iTunes. And please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 